Good morning, I'm April, and I have the honor of reading God's word this morning, if you'll stand with me. This is Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him, to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. As we get started, why don't we open in prayer before we get into this passage. God, we just come before you and we want to quiet our hearts, we want to quiet our minds. Just as we approach your word this morning, would you give us clear understanding? Would you, would you allow us to just set aside those obstacles that maybe hinder us from engaging, from responding, from hearing clearly what your spirit wants to speak? Lord, guard my, my mouth and the words that I speak here, that it just be edifying and it be um, just what you want to communicate, Lord. And we, we rely humbly just on your spirit this morning to do the work, and that's in your name. Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Josh. I, I serve on staff here at Anthem. Um, you, don't worry, I, I don't. If you're new here, I don't teach every week, but um, I have the privilege just to work through this passage. So we, we're picking up in a section in Matthew 18, and it's really important to kind of back up to remember what we came from, what we've been talking about. And last week, if you were here and you recall, we've been talking about uh, if your brother sins against you, we covered that section, what to do if a grievous sin has been committed against you, and it lays out some principles and guidelines for us to interact. What, what is the right way to engage in this? And, and for the bigger section and the bigger passage, we have to remember that this was all initiated, all these teachings by Jesus were initiated by two questions. Back at the beginning of chapter 18, there was a question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that leads to the discourse that Jesus lays out. And then this new question, how many times should I forgive? 
So kind of the roadmap we want to follow here is let's kind of examine in context the question of what Peter's asking, where it sits in this passage, and then how Jesus uses a story, uses a parable to communicate to answer that question. And then I want to kind of lay before you guys two ways for us to respond to this. So we start off in verse 21, and it says this. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Starts with the word then. Then Peter. So remember, when we have a word then that starts off a sentence, it's kind of denote as a consequence or as a result of he's asking this question. So because of what Jesus previously stated, he's asking a question. He immediately comes before him and says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Now, questions and motives are kind of fascinating. You have a question and the motive behind that. What's going on? Because Peter kind of asks a simple question, but he also gives a question answer. As many as seven times. Now, why is he doing this? And we can speculate, but it's kind of interesting to kind of put ourselves in this place and try to think through, why is he even asking this? You know, it's not from left field. We can see the context. We can see he's still on topic, but what's going on with this? Is this just another Peter moment? You know, if you're familiar with Scripture and familiar with the Bible, Peter's the classic character who speaks before he thinks. And we kind of laugh at him. Is that what's going on? Is A few chapters prior, we had the the transfiguration and Peter being on the mount witnessing this great scene and seeing Jesus' body literally transfigured and the glory of God shining. We have Moses and Elijah that appear with him. Peter says, hey, this is really good for us to be here. Let's build some tents and build a booth for you to live in. You know, these silly statements that Peter makes. So why is he doing that? Is Is it possible he's trying to justify himself? Have he and the other disciples been arguing where maybe he's holding something against John? They're arguing who's the greatest in the kingdom, right? Maybe he's already forgiven him six times and just only wants to up it by one to deal with the situation. Or what about, we, we, we know, we see different kinds of questions in group and they're kind of funny, they're intriguing. If we put it in the context of teaching, it'd be like if Pastor Chris got up here and taught a sermon on generosity, and we kind of have the teacher's pet answer. So if Chris teaches a passage on generosity, and somebody in the audience waves and says, oh, pastor, how much money should I give to the church? 40%? You know, what, what is he doing? Is he trying to show just how great he is? Or is he maybe speaking the answer because he already knows what he wants to talk about? If you've been in small groups or community groups, sometimes when you have discussions, you have that person who likes to ask questions, not really because they want to answer, but because they want to talk about a subject. Right? We've all, we've all seen that. Um, or, or possibly, he's just asking a genuine question. And kind of thankful that even though Peter does some crazy stuff, that he at least puts himself out there to ask a question. And we just always need to remember, what are we talking about? And the bigger context is this, the first question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So maybe we're getting a glimpse that Peter's kind of starting to get this. And he says seven times. So, so what's the significance of seven? We can just pass by that. It's just this random arbitrary number that Peter pulls out. 
Well, in fact, in that time, it was common for teachers and rabbis when asked the same question, they'd say three times. You only need to forgive your brother or your sister a repeated offense three times. So we can definitely see Peter's upping the ante on this. He's more than doubling it. Going right for the number of completion, seven, a holy number. That'll make Jesus happy, right? You know, what was he expecting in this? Was he expecting Jesus to be like, wow, Peter, you're really gracious. That's why I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. You're, you're kind of catching on. You're getting this. Whatever it is, we can't really understand. It isn't written in the context of Scripture where we understand the motive behind it. But it is interesting to kind of view that. Why would we ask the question, what's going on? So seven times. And what is Jesus' response? Because it isn't what Peter thought. It's kind of shocking. It says, I do not say to you seven times, but I say to you 77 times. So even though Peter got the principle, he's trying to up what he thought was reasonable by what the social norms expect, just three times. But when Jesus replies to him, we see that Peter still falls way short. Now, interesting enough, in your particular translation of scripture, it might say seven times 70, or 77 times. There, there is a kind of discrepancy depending on what translation you read. Um, if you can figure that out, it's a good thing to study. We won't cover it here. Um, I believe the accurate is probably seven to se- 77 because it has some Old Testament references, but if you'd like to do homework, there's some interesting translations between the Greek and the Hebrew and the Septuagint where they might have come up with those big numbers because there's a big difference between 490 and 77. But if you can figure that out, um, next week you can sit in the front row as a reward. But seven times, 77 times. So is the point that we only forgive 77 times? So on the 78th time, you have the right and the privilege to not forgive. Is that what we're talking about? Now, I have to understand this is not literal, but this is the heart and this is the principal teaching. I think the point of it is, hey, you're way short. Even in your expectations of being overly gracious, seven times just isn't nearly enough. And Jesus begins to move into a story. And he starts off and he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Starts with, therefore. This is what we're talking about, the kingdom of heaven. This is a parable that references what the kingdom of God is like, how it functions, what's important there. So we need to hold this whole story in context. This is under the framework. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And it's greatly different and contrasts what we understand in our world, what we see around us. So Jesus uses a literary device. He tells a story. In verse 23, it says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, he was, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So the king decides to settle his accounts, to, to, to hold his servants accountable. Right? It was expected that servants be honorable in what they did before the king, and he found one that was short 10,000 talents, that owed him a sum of 10,000 talents. So how much is that in our day and age? Sometimes we lose it because we don't understand how much a talent is. 
You know, because if, if we're comparing it, if a talent is an equivalent exchange of something like the Colombian peso, which is close to 3,800 to one US dollar, that is just not a lot of money, is it? You might buy a few small things, but what, what, what exchange are we talking about? Now, the Greek word for 10,000, we get our word myriad, a lot. Sometimes they use 10,000 just as a general reference, to, as a way of communicating a big number. But either way, it says he owed 10,000 talents. Now, if we took the average worker's compensation for one day, and he worked six days a week, it would take you 20 years to earn one talent. Okay, so if you, doing what you do, if you're just a common worker, and you work for six days a week, it would take you 20 years to pay back one talent. So when you're dealing with 10,000, we're dealing with a really big number. We're dealing with 200,000 years to pay back what you owe the king. This is, this is huge number, and that's what it's trying to evoke. This is in the billions of dollars in our context. In verse 25, it tells us he couldn't pay. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and the payment to be made. He couldn't pay up. The sum was too large. Even if he worked every day, there's just not a feasibility of working that many years. And he would be sold. He's commanded to be sold as a small measure of justice to cover what he owed. Not just him, but everything that he had, his family, his children, his wife. Verse 26, it tells us this. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Okay, so the servant comes before him. He realizes he's in trouble. He owes this large sum, and what does he do? He throws himself before the king and says, I will pay it back. Have patience with me. I just need more time. But the king sees the situation accurately. And what is his response? There's no possible way for him to pay it back. He sees that. The king has compassion on him. And what does he do? The king sets the man free because of that compassion. And not only sets him free, but completely forgives him of the debt, the debt that he can never repay. In verse 28, it tells us, But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Immediately after leaving the presence of the king, this guy leaves. He goes and finds one of his brothers, and he doesn't even just say, hey, give me some money you owe me, or hey, you owe me some money, can you settle your debts? But what does he do? He grabs him by the throat, begins to choke him, and says, now pay me what you owe me. Resorts to to violence, to using harsh treatment. Over how much? A hundred denarii. So same thing, how how much is that? So a hundred denarii would be about equivalent of 100 days wage, a denarii being the common payment for an average day's work. 
And the other servant pleads with him, have patience on me. I will pay you back. I need more time. The same response that he put before the king. Now the reality is this is a totally reachable goal. This is well within his ability to pay it back, given time, given, given patience. But what is the response? It falls on deaf ears, and it's kind of met with really extreme measures. He refuses to listen, not only uses physical violence to threaten him, but he fills out a warrant and has him cast in debtor's prison. Now, debtor's prison is always this weird thing. I always wondered, how, how do you pay back your debt when you're in prison? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Is this just a... Uh, a, a reaction, an irrational reaction, but actually in this time, if you're cast in debtor's prison, there's two ways to pay your debt. That would be by you worked it off through the labor and through hard labor, you would earn the money to pay back what you owed, or a beneficiary would have to pay. Family members or somebody else would have to pay your debt for you to be released. Verse 31 tells us this. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you to do not forgive his brother from his heart. So you see the fellow servants witness this. They see this go down and it says it greatly distresses them of the situation. This is not just. So much so that they go plead before the king. And the king in his anger summons this servant, says, you wicked servant, I forgave you. Do you remember just today You came before me with a debt that you could not pay, and you pleaded, and I showed you mercy. Should you not have shown mercy likewise to your fellow brother? And he takes him and he throws him into prison until all his debt is repaid. Now remember, the implication is this. His debt was unpayable to begin with. Now he has to pay it. Unable unable to pay it, The king puts him in prison until that is made right. And verse 35 is where the real weight hits for us today. It says this, So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. He stops the story and begins to address the crowd and listeners. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Heavy words, is it not? Let's kind of let that sink in. Sink in. So I will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Not just words. I mean, today, forgiveness can be this weird transactionary thing of just making a statement. Parents, we see this all the time with our kids. When they fight at home, it looks like this. I'll yell at my kids because one's tortilla slapping the other, and it seems to upset them, right? And they're fighting. You're like, hey, you need to apologize to your brother for hitting him with the tortilla. And it's like, oh, sorry. It's like, I forgive you. Right? Nothing really took place there. Just words were exchanged because it's like, oh, mom and dad want us to apologize for that. I'm really glad I hit them with that. Right? But no, from our heart, what is the deal? From our hearts, we are to forgive. From our deepest, innermost being, 
not just exchanged words, not just words spoken. So, so what's the big picture here? You kind of have to go back to the question, how many times should you forgive your brother? Upon listening to this story, would you just say, oh, he, he literally means just 77. I don't think we'd hear that and be like, oh, no, it's, it's just 77 times. But this principle of how forgiveness works in the kingdom of heaven, we, 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 we see that Jesus takes that and uses it and says, hey, if you actually withhold forgiveness, you are like that wicked servant. You today who hear this story, if you withhold forgiveness, you are like that wicked servant who goes out and does that. That withholds mercy. Somebody who goes out and violently tries to extract what's owed him. And I think this story even carries more weight for us today. See, we have to remember that there's a trajectory in God's great rescue plan. When this is spoken, Jesus has not died. He's not hung upon the cross. His blood has not been shed. He has not raised from the dead. But where we sit over 2,000 years later, this side of the resurrection, we are beneficiaries of this in a whole new light, are we not? That's kind of the whole point. See, we have been completely forgiven a great debt that we could never repay. And when we begin to hold forgiveness, when things are left undone, see, we're not being consistent with the message of the gospel. And the whole truth is we're, we're to live out the gospel. What's happened in the bigger realities of what we have been forgiven from, we're to live that way towards each other. That's to be in our lives, in our community. And followers of Jesus, remember this, you were purchased with a price, a great price, you're the ones who have been forgiven that debt you can never repay. And in response to that, and because of that, because you were forgiven much, we should return as conduits, as an extension of what has happened to us because of the gospel, because of the work, finished work of Jesus, we begin to live that out towards each other. And there's two ways, I said from the beginning, I want us to think about this. Simple story, but it's pretty straight, straightforward. There's, there's, there's the practical, the simple question. Are we holding any unforgiveness? It seems simple, at least on the surface, but there's a possibility that there's a situation, maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to your mind that you need to deal with. Life's com- pretty complex. Little offenses seem easy to get over and move on. But what about the really great ones? What about the hurts that cut really deep? What about the horrible things that have been done to you or maybe from a fellow believer? What do we do with those? Every situation is unique. Think about it. Family hurts, close relationships, abuses, Even marriage relationships that fall apart, hurtful things said, grievous and harmful acts against people, against humanity that we see. What about when you're cheated or when you're lied about? It's 
Sometimes these hurts, sometimes this unforgiveness goes back many, many, many years. It might be something that you've carried with you. How does this passage speak to that situation? Would Jesus actually give you a pass to withhold forgiveness? Or is the communication clear? I know it would be really easy to offer a compelling reason to even justify why my situation is different. Maybe why I'm not dealing with it with the way that it lays out here. If you begin to explain your story, we can. We're good at that as humans. And I want to be gentle with this. I want to be gracious, understanding that as we, as we examine this text and I let this just bear its weight upon us. I don't want to throw around Christian platitudes and look at you guys and be like, oh, it's simple. Forgive and move on. Life seldomly just isn't that, and that isn't very helpful, is it? See, because big hurts, they can be reoccurring. What happens if you've dealt with something and it comes to mind again? It's almost brought new and afresh, and it's in your mind. Something that happened from the past, it creeps back in, and you have to deal with it again. What about repeated offenses? Those daily small things that just kind of take a toll over time. In the daily rhythms of life. This is kind of where, how many times do we forgive? That's the question. How many times can we hold this? Does that have to be committed till we can hold this against somebody? See, this story kind of takes any argument, any justification we can craft, and, the great, and puts it against the great debt that we owe. See, the two are not even comparable. When you begin to juxtapose, this is what's happened to me, this is the wrong committed against me, compared to what I was relieved of from my debt, from my wrongdoings, it doesn't even measure up. And also be careful, this passage is not dealing with justice. It's not dealing with correction. We have other scriptures. We go to the whole of scripture to kind of round that out. This isn't just a uh, forgive and forget and move on and we never deal with situations. We have the rest of scripture to help us work through those things. We're not talking about how do we seek justice? How do we fix these things? But the point is this. We have been forgiven much. We should in like turn forgive. So hear me on this. This is not condemnation. This is not me standing up here trying to give you guys a guilt trick. Only if you guys would forgive. That's not what's happening. This is, rather, this is actual freedom. So you're not held hostage by holding on to it. When you begin to hold unforgiveness, you are like this wicked servant who gets put into prison It goes deep, that bitterness. We can be set free. Those roots of things that grow and just have a way of holding on. But the the joy of the story is we can be set free from that. You're no longer a slave to having to hold that. You have a way to forgive it because you have been forgiven. It's the gospel. It's Jesus' perfect work. And he, he has made that way for us not to be held captive. He set us free. And there's no blockage between us and God. It kind of like alludes to the fact that maybe there's a potential that when we begin to hold things, it kind of blocks up our communication in heaven. 
That's not a good thing. I'm not trying to theologically explain how that is a fact or isn't a fact, but why even take that risk? See, this should fill us with joy that freedom's offered. Because what Jesus accomplished on the cross, through his death, through his resurrection, we are completely set free. See, the gospel realities that can be lived out in our lives, in our communities, they can be rehearsed here today. And the second thing to consider is this. We have the practical side of things. Do we just simply hold on to it? What the passage is directly speaking. But when I ask you the question is, do you make much of the gospel? Do you remember the great debt that you owed? So hear me on this. Unless the gospel is beautiful to you, unless it is valued and elevated in our church, in our lives, you won't be compelled to forgive. Because your view of God will be too small, and you'll have an unrealistic view of yourself. If you don't set that before you, why would you be compelled to forgive something greatly wrong done to you? It isn't. So that's why we hold the gospel and what Jesus has done remind, hey, I've been forgiven much. I can, in turn, forgive others. Let's remember where we came from. Remember how you obtained the salvation even to begin with. Let's, let's get real. Scripture paints it in a different light than some of us like to admit. It says we were dead in our sins. Let me read you Ephesians 2. It says this, starting in verse 1. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked and following to the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. You weren't drowning in your sins. You weren't having trouble with your sins. It says that you were actually dead in them, completely hopeless. But God in his great mercy has made you alive. By grace, a simple gift. And that's why we hold these things. Remember where we came from, church. I think this is really interesting that they use the example and exchange of money in this story. See if I can explain. See, at, at times, you can view forgiveness just as words spoken. It's kind of that ethereal exchange, but, but there's nothing left really to concretely fill the wrongs, fill the broken, and fill, fill the deeds that were done. It's, it's more than just words. And I think we see that modeled in the gospel. It would be like this. Let's say Kyle borrows my car. Right, Kyle? So I give you the keys to my car. And he takes the car, and he begins to drive, but he decides he wants the text message. And as he's driving that, he runs into the other lane, smashes a car, overcorrects, drives off, and runs in through somebody's house. Now, he feels really bad about it because Kyle's a nice guy, right? He says, I'm really sorry about all this. But the reality is, 
Kyle's a youth pastor. He doesn't really make money, so he has no money to pay all the damage, right? As a youth pastor, he pretty much gets paid, you know, pizza and Twinkies and shiny trinkets. Not real money. <laughs> but in, I'm being the nice guy, like, okay, I know you can't pay for this. Um, it's okay. You don't have to. I'll deal with it. Now, he's been forgiven. I'm not angry at him, but there still remains the damage that was done. My car's broken. He smashed into somebody else's car. There's a lot of damage to be done. Who, who, who covers it? Who fixes it? Who covers that price? And see, in the gospel, you take that story, that Jesus not only forgives us, but he covers the debt that was owed. The judgment against you, he takes our place. Not only could you not pay it, you couldn't cover the damages. There's a great exchange. And if we stop there, that would still be really great news to be like, hey, Jesus covered our sins. He's forgiven us. He's let us go. The damage has been fixed. We'd still be at zero, and that would be really, really great news. But it actually goes above and beyond that. It says he takes the, the righteousness of Jesus, what he did here on earth, his perfectly lived life, what's accredited in heaven, and he begins to forward that to us. So your bank account is no longer at zero, but all of a sudden you have the bank account filled with the righteousness of Jesus, his merit, his work, and it just keeps on going. It says that we are adopted. When you're adopted into a king's family, that makes you royalty. God's word tells us that we're completely loved, even when we're unlovable. It says he views us as holy. Now, anybody in this room would say, oh, yeah, I'm holy. I measure up to that. Not really. Or would you rather have somebody look at the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus? See, when God looks at us, he views us through the lens of the perfected work of Jesus. If that doesn't stir joy or gratitude in your heart, I don't know what will. See, it has to be this transcendent truth. We have to view life through this lens that points to something outside of ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be the bar at which we view everything. The gospel is that. Who we are in Jesus is that. It is above and beyond us. We need something more compelling, something more glorious than just what we bring to the table. And that's what the gospel is. And we have to continually, daily set that before us. If we want to accurately and appropriately in response deal well with forgiveness, we have to have that bigger picture thing because if we do not elevate the gospel, it is not beautiful to us. Why would we forgive? But in light of that, we begin to extend that forgiveness. So as we wrap up, here, here's the response. This is where we do family business. This is, as a follower of Jesus, where I have to kind of lay some things before you. How, how do you engage with this? See, we want to be a church that when God's word has spoken, we respond to it. So the simple question from the practical, do you need to forgive somebody? Do you need to have God do a deeper work in your, how, in your heart here and now? See, the good thing with forgiveness 
It isn't like reconciliation where you actually need two parties to come together and be willing to reconcile to have that take place. Forgiveness can be sometimes one way. You can forgive somebody even though they might not apologize. You can be set free from the bondage of holding on to that. As followers of Jesus, we're to be a people marked by obedience. So the simple question is, when was the last time you have done anything in response to God's words as a mark of obedience? We talk about it a lot here, but when, like, truly have you read something that actually impacted your life enough to do something about it? And, and I tried to lay before us two ways. If we need to deal with business and deal with unforgiveness, we can do that. We've been set free to do that, to allow the Holy Spirit do a deeper work in his power. If not, we can rejoice in the gospel. That's something that we have to do daily. Remember the debt that was paid on our behalf. See, we don't want to give the enemy, the devil, a stronghold in our lives, in our church. If you want to wreck a church apart, begin to have unforgiveness. Begin to have bitterness. You want to wreck a family apart, do the same. Friendships, all those things that we can carry We can be set free, and that's the good news today. We've been given the power to be set free. So if that's you and you need to respond to that, do it. This is the time and place. Don't hold on to this. Don't leave here without engaging with this. And then we begin, we rejoice in the gospel. By way of reminder, we're going to sing songs that remind us, hey, this is the truth. This is who we are in Jesus. This is the the finished work that he has done what the gospel means to us and what we've been forgiven is greatly important as we go through life. And you, and you need the power of the Holy Spirit to work these things. Some things hurt so deeply that you just can't in your own strength. But we've been given God's spirit that says he'll do that work. The gospel is a powerful thing and we begin, begin to live the truth of it out towards each other. Would you stand with me? As we take a few moments just to, to reflect, I encourage you, if you, if you need to sit and think and reflect and do business with God, this is the time. I wanted to keep it brief so we have that time, so we can sing, we can, we can remind ourselves, we can sing over each other. This is what Jesus did. But I encourage you, don't, don't let this time pass. If, the, if God's speaking to you, we let the weight of Scripture rest on you and, and, and deal with it accordingly. But if not, from here, go out. We can still walk in this pattern. When we move forward, the things that haven't been done to us, will we interact with them in the way that is in step, in line with the message of the gospel? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, and it, it does bear a heavy weight, and the gravity of it sometimes is hard to hear. But thank you, Jesus, that we have been set free. We have been forgiven a debt that that we could never pay on our own, God. And you have wiped that. You have covered the cost. Let that be beautiful to us. Let that be elevated in our hearts, in in our minds, in this church. God, do a work in these people. If there's people who need to be set free, Thank you that you offer that, that it's a free
freely given thing. Help us to, to purpose to walk through these things, that we'd be a church that begins to act and think and speak more like Jesus every day. Just ask and pray that in your name. Amen.